Habits and Health, episode 52. Welcome to the Habits and Health podcast, where we believe creating healthy habits should be easy. Brought to you by an educator and coach for anyone who wants to create a healthier life. Here's your host, Tony Winyard. Welcome to one year of Habits and Health. Yeah, the podcast started, um, well, exactly one year ago this day, this week. Uh, episode 52, Dr. Jenny Goodman is my guest today. She recently released a book, or in the last couple of years, called Staying Alive in Toxic Times. And it's an absolutely superb book. I've read it three times because there's just so much good information in there. And I was delighted that Jenny accepted the invitation to be a guest on the show. We cover lots of different ground around habits and nutrition and toxicity and and many other areas. So I hope you enjoy this week's episode with Dr. Jenny Goodman. Habits and health, my guest today, Dr. Jenny Goodman. How are you, Jenny? I'm very well, thank you. Pleased to be joining you. And I am so happy that you're here. I, mean, I mentioned to you just now before we started recording, I've read your book numerous times now. I think I'm on the third time. It may be the fourth. I don't, I don't know. But it's a, <laughs> it's a fantastic book. Um, Thank you. So for people who, who have come to this maybe and don't know so much about you, what what would you tell them about? How do you, do you normally sort of, exp- when you meet someone in a networking meeting, what do you say about your background? Oh, gosh. Well, um, I've started calling myself a rebel medic or a radical doctor. Um, I qualified a million years ago, back in 1982. Um, And I I worked as a junior hospital doctor for a while. I worked in A&E, and I liked that best because I felt everything I was doing was right. But in all other departments of the hospital, I felt everything we're doing is too little, too late, or actually making people worse. Certainly, I didn't learn much about healing, and even less about the causes of illness and the prevention of illness. And I used to ask questions on the ward rounds, like, why has this person got liver cancer? Or why is this person so ill? And not only did I not get an answer, the very question itself was taboo. Now, that's improved a little bit, but not that much. So, you know, basically, I couldn't find a way of doing what I had imagined medicine would be until very luckily in the 1990s, I discovered the British Society for Ecological Medicine. Now, that was a a bunch of doctors, disillusioned medics, asking all the same questions I'd been asking. Why has this person got ill? How can we prevent it? Why are millions of us dying of cancer, diabetes, dementia, heart disease? What's going on with all these real pandemics? Um, And these guys were finding answers. So I was very lucky. I did a a two-year postgrad training with them in ecological medicine, Uh, And I found them just at the time that course was beginning. So it was serendipitous. And what ecological medicine is, which I've now been practicing for 22 years, is it's ecological in two ways. One is that it sees the whole body as one joined up ecosystem. So for example, you know, you might have a pain in your joints, painful joints, and you get sent to the rheumatologist. You also have a persistent skin rash, and so you're sent to the dermatologist, but you also have palpitations, and so you're sent to the cardiologist. Now, those three specialities, those three specialists will never speak to each other. They'll never sit in a room and say, what's going on in this person's body that suddenly they have these three problems? And if you could magically put them in a room together, they wouldn't know what to say to each other. 
So ecological medicine is saying, look, all these things are going on in one person, in one body. What is the link? What is the cause? Or more likely, what are the multiple causes contributing to that? And we look for the causes in terms of nutrition, what's going in and what's failing to go in for various reasons. And we can come in a minute to why most of us in the West are actually paradoxically undernourished. Even if we're obese, we're undernourished. And the other thing, of course, we look at is the environment. And environmental medicine is crucial because it's looking at the toxins in our earth, our soil, and therefore our food, and our water, and our air, that are making us ill and behind so many of these new uh, post-industrial epidemics. Now, the other sense in which ecological medicine is ecological is that it sees the human body within the wider ecosystem of the planet. You know, we are part of nature. And if we try to see ourselves as separate, the, the consequences are pretty disastrous. So, you know, we're extracting all these resources, which are finite, from the earth and poisoning it in the process And as I think I say at the beginning of chapter seven, you can't poison the planet without poisoning the people. So ecological medicine in practice is an education about what we're doing to ourselves and the planet and how to reverse it, but also how to help the individual person understand why they're lacking in nutrients, why they're poisoned and how to change it. And there are many, many ways of changing it, of getting better nutrition and avoiding the environmental toxins. And, and they're simpler than you might expect. Wow. So when you, so you said in the 90s you joined the, um, I think, was it Society of Ecological Medicine? It's the British Society for Ecological Medicine. And how, so from, I gather from what you said, that there wasn't, it wasn't so big then. How, is there, is there many more people now? Is it growing? Well, I believe it, it started back in 1983, I think, from the merger, merger of two societies, uh, one about nutrition and one about allergy and environmental toxins. It was called something different back then. It's getting bigger all the time. And we've got more and more doctors applying to join, um, not just GPs anymore, but all sorts of consultants from every speciality who want to know how to really help their patients and how to help them long-term improve their health and stay well rather than just suppress the symptoms and treat what presents in the moment. So I'll give you an example. Um, Again, if you go to your doctor, your GP, and you say, oh, I've got symptoms in every system of the body, right? My head hurts. I've got a headache, I'm exhausted, I've got muscle pain, I can't think straight, my brain's not working properly, and let's say you're a woman and your menstrual cycle's all disrupted, and you know your joints are hurting, and you're a bit short of breath. Now that is symptoms in about five or six different body systems. Your poor old beleaguered GP will scratch her head and say, do you know what, it's all in your head, nobody can have that many illnesses at once. And we'll give you a prescription for an antidepressant, which, of course, will only make things worse. But the irony is that when the GP says it's all in your head, they may be literally correct because most of the toxins in our environment that are damaging us are things like pesticides and plastics, plasticizer and chemicals and petrochemicals, all of which are fat-soluble. Technically, they're called lipophilic, which means they dissolve in fatty tissue. That means they'll get through the skin, for example, the benzene in a commercial perfume, 
And then they'll get through all the cell membranes into all the cells and they will accumulate wherever we have most fatty tissue, which is in the brain, right? So our brains are being damaged at every stage of the life cycle by these fat-soluble petrochemicals, which are everywhere. And um, chapter seven of my book is full of all sorts of tips on how to avoid them and identify them and get them out of your system permanently if they're in there. Um, Yes, yeah, so the GP who says it's all in your head may be being rather more accurate than he thinks. And since, I mean, so you mentioned about the growth of, of the, the Ecological Society and, and there seems to be many other sort of similar movements that says integrative medicine and functional medicine and, and so yes. on. Yes, yes. Around the world is this, this looking at everything holistically seems to be happening much more now. It, it's taking off. <clears throat> and frankly, doctors have been slow on the uptake. Because for hundreds of years, we've had herbalists. Herbal, herbal medicine is the oldest medicine in the world. It's simple. It's earth-based. You take the plants and you learn over hundreds of years uh, empirically what makes people better. Although herbalists now, of course, have all the biochemistry backing up what they've been doing all along. Um, so holistic medicine has been very much in the alternative medicine world. But the past three or four decades, doctors have been rushing to catch up. Functional medicine is the American term. Um, and I have a problem with it because it doesn't tell you much, but it, in conventional medicine, functional has the association of imaginary or psychosomatic or being all in your mind. Um, so it's confusing for us over here. Ecological medicine is the British version. It's been going for much longer. Uh, the British Society for Ecological Medicine is an educational charity, basically. We, want, we run trainings. Uh, the Institute for Functional Medicine, while it does absolutely brilliant trainings, it is a commercial organization. You know, it is not not for profit. It is for profit. Um, so they're much bigger, much louder, and they have these very intensive five-day trainings, which are very good hmm. because graduates of that training have sat in with me on my consultations and they know their stuff. So this is blooming everywhere, hmm. um, especially in the past couple of years. Um, and a lot of it is just common sense. You know, if the body's not working well, you ask yourself, what's it missing? What does it need? And often what it needs is the nutrients that are or should be in our normal food. Okay, so vitamins, minerals, essential fatty acids, plenty of water, plenty of good proteins should simply be part of our food. But even if you're eating a really healthy so-called balanced diet, although we could argue till the cows come home or the lentils come home about what constitutes balance. Um, but even if you're eating everything right, it's not necessarily the case that your vitamins and minerals and everything you need is in that food. And this is where we cannot separate health from modern agricultural practices. Okay, so after the Second World War, there was this panic about food security. Um, and the idea that we must be self-sufficient and therefore we, although we're not, and we must grow much more intensively. So farmers were encouraged to use all these pesticides and nitrogen fertilizers, which make no mistake were derived from nerve gases used in both world wars. And, you know, once the war was over, the manufacturers needed an outlet. Um, and that combined with the government's desire to produce food much more intensively. So what we're looking at now, many decades later, is we're looking at soil that's utterly depleted of its nutrients. Because if you force the soil to grow 
three or four crops in a year, whereas previously it was only sustaining one crop. And if you put on so much fertilizer that you force the plants to take all the nutrients out of the soil, then you've got depleted soil, you've got depleted crops. So if you eat those vegetables and those fruits and those grains and those pulses, there's not enough nutrients in them. And if you eat the animals that have been fed on those crops, you're also eating food that's been depleted. Um, And not only are they depleting the soil, they're poisoning it with the pesticides and with the fertilizers. And by the way, one of the waste products of the phosphate fertilizer industry is fluoride, which they're not allowed to release from factory chimneys. Get this, because it's too toxic. So they're trying to put it in our water supply. And they've already put it in toothpaste and in the drops that the dentist puts on your kid's teeth without asking you or telling you, uh, and so on. So it's an interwoven web. As Daniel Barenboim said, everything is connected. And that's why some of us, some of the time, need nutritional supplements because there just isn't enough in our food. Now, you can increase your nutrient intake. For example, rather than just eating salad, you can juice it and you can make a lot of vegetable juice which has got concentrated nutrients. And of course, if you eat organic, if you eat real soil association approved organic, then you're not eating the pesticides and you're not eating the fertilizers. And I think that's the single most important change and the first change, even if it's the only change to make. Now, people do say to me, but, you know, organic food is so expensive. Well, the first thing to say is, yes, it is, and it shouldn't be. And write to your MP and say, why does the government continue to subsidize the big agrochemical farmers who cover our landscape with these uniform monocrops of rapeseed oil and and ruin the biodiversity in the soil, which leads to lack of biodiversity in our gut, damages our microbiome. Why aren't they subsidizing the good old organic farmers who are keeping us healthy? So that's one response. The second response is, what proportion of your income do you spend on food? Because in the 1950s, We spent about a third of our total income on food. It's gone down and down and down. Now it's about 8% on average. Yeah, I mean, I have have some lovely neighbors down the road who say to me, gosh, how can you afford all that organic food? Oh, by the way, um, I've got to cancel next week's uh, social gathering because we're going to Australia for six weeks. This is obviously a story from before the pandemic, right? And these people literally went on a six-week holiday to Australia and claim that they can't afford organic food. Now, I can't afford a holiday in Australia, not that it would be my chosen destination right now, Um, but because I choose to prioritise eating organic. um, And the third thing, or the fourth thing, whichever it is, is if you're a meat eater, if you're a carnivore, then changing to organic means that instead of eating chicken or beef or lamb or pork five or six times a week, you can afford to eat it only once or twice a week, but make sure it's organic and free range. And that's better for you and the planet in lots of different ways. Um, So the sad thing is we end up in a situation where however well we try to eat, some of us need some supplements some of the time. You know, in a British winter, we need vitamin C, vitamin D and zinc. And in a viral pandemic, I would say we need those even through the summer although that may not be the case this summer, 2022. And and something else that 
you were talking about the organic food and how the soil has so many more nutrients and the, and the plants and, and so on. But something else as well about the organic food, which I think a lot of people don't don't know about, is when uh, the vegetables haven't been subjected to all those so-called protection, the pesticides and herbicides and so on, they then have to fend for themselves. So they create ad- additional sort of nutrients, which are beneficial for us as well. Isn't, isn't yes, that- indeed. And in regenerative agriculture, they're utilising that capacity of plants to protect themselves. So there have always been predators. There have always been pests. Um, but yes, you're right, plants have always produced substances to protect themselves from their, their enemies in nature. And one of the ways to make this work even better is what's called companion planting. So you get these problems with pests and predators if you have monoculture. If you're only growing one crop over a vast area, then any pest that likes to feed on that crop will, will come in and will overgrow, will multiply hugely. Whereas if you've got 10 or 12 different types of plants in one small acreage, then they protect each other. You know, I mean, marigolds like calendula and garlic will protect other crops because they'll, you know, fend off the predators and so on. So agroecology, including agroforestry or forested agriculture, is utilising this. So you don't just have the crop you're growing. You have lots of different crops. You have trees and you have animals doing what animals have done on farms for 10,000 years, which is wandering around and pooing. So they naturally fertilize the soil um, and they eat some of the things that you don't want to be there and they eat some of the things that you do want to be there. But it's all about balance. So mixed farms is the way to go. Small scale, family sized mixed farms where you grow a little bit of everything. And there are lots of really exciting ventures happening in this regard now. And I'm hoping to put a lot about regenerative farming in my next book because, you know, we cannot separate what's happening in the field from what's happening in our gut, which just takes me back to another point about why we may be nutritionally deficient, even if we're eating well. And that is that our guts aren't working so well. Our small intestine and stomach generally is not as good as it was a few generations ago at absorbing the nutrients, vitamins, minerals, essential fatty acids from our food because the microbiome is compromised. We haven't got so many friendly good bugs in there and we've got an awful lot of unfriendly ones. And that's because, firstly, we've been eating food that's contaminated with pesticides. So just as those pesticides kill bugs in the soil, they will kill bugs in our intestine. But it's also because of antibiotics. And the antibiotics are not just what you get from your GP. They're what you get from eating non-organic, non-free-range animal food. And they may even be coming out of your tap. Because every animal that's been dosed with antibiotics and every human that's been taking antibiotics is peeing. And that goes down the loo, into the sewage, into the water table, into the water system. And the water companies, bless them, they take bacteria out of our water supply, but they do not take antibiotic residues, pesticide residues, fertilizer residues, which have run off from the soil into the reservoirs. They don't remove heavy metal traces and they don't remove the hormones. Now, the hormones are in there because of all the women taking the pill or taking HRT. Um, and now after Brexit, it's not illegal to inject hormones into animals 
and therefore animals may be injected with hormones and that may get into our water table as well. Um, so for all those reasons, but particularly the antibiotics and pesticide residues, our guts are not working as well as they might be. Uh, taking the contraceptive pill also interferes with the balance of the bugs in the gut. It encourages the overgrowth of fungi, fungal organisms. And of course, some fungi are good and some are bad, but it's all about balance. Um, so there are lots of reasons. And, and of course, the main one is eating sugar. If we eat lots of sugar, we feed the unfriendly bugs in the microbiome. Um, and just cutting sugar out of the diet and having lots of dark green leafy vegetables can be enough to shift the microbiome to a healthier balance. And then your whole gut will start digesting and absorbing better. You mentioned there about the water and all the various toxins and, and so on in the water. So for anyone listening to this who's alarmed by what you just said, what would you what recommendations would you make about what they could yes, do? Don't, don't be alarmed. Get a water filter. Um, and in, oh, I think chapter seven and quite a few other places in the book, I do recommend how to choose a water filter and how to get a good one. But a couple of criteria are make sure that the company you're buying from has been in the business of making water filters for a few decades. Make sure they didn't just jump on the bandwagon last week. And secondly, I would advise, if you can, if you're living in your own home, to get a plumbed-in water filter, not just a countertop one. Um, the couple of, I mean, if, you know, if you're a student in a bedsit, then a countertop water filter is absolutely better than nothing. But it's not ideal because the jug into which the water is filtering may well be plastic. Now, if it's hard plastic and you keep it somewhere cold, that's all right. But it's soft, if it's soft plastic and the sun is shining on it through the window, then the plasticizer chemicals like BPA, bisphenol A and others, can get into the water. Ideally, you also want a plumbed-in whole house water filter because it's not just that you want to be drinking water that hasn't got chlorine and fluoride and all the other nasties in it. You also want to be cooking your rice or boiling your pasta if you're still eating pasta or whatever um, with water that hasn't got those toxins in. You want to be making a cup of tea with water that hasn't got those toxins in. Mm. And you also want to be having a bath or a shower in water that hasn't got those toxins in. Mm. I mean, it took me, I have to be honest, years and years and years to get round to this, long after I knew about it. So only about two years ago did we finally... Uh, get rid of our plumbing water filter that was for the kitchen only and get a whole house water filter, okay? Holidays cancelled, lockdown happened, get a plumbing water filter. And I noticed the difference immediately. Um, and so did my grown-up kids and my husband who said, oh, having a long hot bath isn't irritating my skin anymore. I've stopped itching after the bath or after the shower. And now... Um, I can smell the chlorine in the water in other people's homes. And I really notice that I can get in the shower, however long I stay there, it doesn't smell of chlorine. Now, of course, it's, it's a small amount compared to the swimming pool, but it's every day. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, again, that's an investment worth making. Now, it shouldn't be necessary, but it now will be more than ever. I don't know if any of you have noticed our... Beloved and beleaguered Prime Minister, dear Boris Johnson, um, a few weeks ago discovered a sudden deep concern for children's dental health. Isn't that remarkable how much he cares about children's teeth? 
So he said, we've got to put fluoride in the water supply throughout the UK. Now, it's already been in the water supply in some parts of the UK for a very long time, Birmingham and the West Midlands. Now, in my practice, I've seen children as well as adults from all over Britain and Ireland and Europe. And many of them have neurodevelopmental disorders, whether or not it's diagnosed as autism or whatever, neurodevelopmental delay. And some of them have bone disorders. And there is a disproportionate number of those kids that I've seen, this is just my experience, from Birmingham and the West Midlands, where they've had fluoride in their water supply for many decades. I think they were the guinea pigs for this in the UK. And the number of kids with bone and brain problems from there that I've seen is quite extraordinary. And back in the 90s, I saw statistics that they had a much higher rate than the national average of osteosarcoma, which is a very dangerous primary bone tumor. I can't find those papers anymore. But the point is that it used to be up to the local council, the local authorities, to decide what they would put in their water supply. And there are other parts of the UK now that I think have this in Southampton and parts of the northeast, parts of Cheshire, and the Republic of Ireland has it as well. London doesn't at the moment. But it's very interesting that most states in America do have fluoride artificially added to their water supply. And Scandinavia has never done it. And nowhere in Europe now has fluoride in the water. They've made that decision for the good of their population. So I think we need to campaign against it. Um, fluoride alert. There's a fluoride alert group in the UK. We need to write to our MPs about it. But if it goes through, we must filter our water. Now, for those of you who did chemistry, GCSE, or O-level, if you're as old as I am, uh, you'll remember that fluorine, chlorine, bromine, and iodine are all in the same group on the periodic table of the elements. They're all what's called halogens. Um, and they look a bit similar to the body. They all have seven electrons in the outermost orbit, and therefore they can displace each other. So one of the ways in which fluoride has been damaging us is to push iodine out of the body. We need iodine. It's crucial for not just the thyroid, but the stomach, the breast, the salivary glands, the prostate, the ovaries. Um, so fluoride can damage all that, can damage the kidneys and the bones as well. Um, so taking a little bit of iodine is to some extent a protection against this, but the most important thing is to make sure you're not drinking fluoride. It's uh, not naturally part of the human physiology. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Habits and Health podcast, where we believe creating healthy habits should be easy. If you're looking for the fastest and most effective way to transform your energy and well-being, we invite you to join Tony for an upcoming Habits and Health workshop. This five-week group workshop will empower you with tools to disrupt unwanted habits and make positive changes easy. You'll enjoy sounder sleep, better energy, less stress and a happier mood. Workshops begin on the first week of every month and you can sign up now at tonywinyard.com. Now, back to the show. A few minutes ago, you, uh, you, you touched upon supplements. Um, something that I've noticed recently is I, I listen to quite a few podcasts and, I, and I'm often reading and there's, there's a few doctors who I really respect in you know, some of the information that they, they give out and some of the podcasts that they, they're doing. But there's a couple of guys, and I'm not going to mention your name, but there's a couple of people who, who I do enormous, enormously respect and they give great information. 
But something that's kind of disturbed me recently is they've been printing lists of supplements they take. And I don't know if I'm reading this wrong, but as far as I'm concerned, what supplements are suitable for a person depends on their metabolism, their gene history, and so many other things. And <coughs> exactly. these doctors that are printing, well, this is what I take. Well, that doesn't mean most of the people looking at that list, it won't be appropriate for. Yes, I, I think that's right. I mean, he thinks, you know, nutritional supplementation, like any medical intervention, should be individualized. It should be personalized medicine. And it is the case, mostly, mostly, that what's right for you and what's right for me may not be identical. Not only is it different for different people, but it's different for the same person at different stages of their life cycle, depending on their age, and at different seasons of the year. You know, so what I need in the winter and what I need in the summer are different. What I needed pre-menopause and what I need post-menopause is different. Gender makes a difference. You know, if you're pregnant, you need vastly more nutrients of all kinds, if you're breastfeeding also. So, yes, it should be individualized. But, but particularly with a pandemic, there are certain nutrients that absolutely all of us need. Um, and the first one I would say is vitamin D, vitamin D3 that we would normally get from the sunshine. And before the Industrial Revolution, most people probably got enough during a British summer to just about last them through the winter, although it would be a struggle. Um, so if you were working outside all day with your arms and legs exposed from April to October, you'd probably make enough vitamin D to just about last you through the winter. But now, even if we have a decent summer, most of us are working indoors. So frankly, unless you're a full-time gardener, in the British climate, you must have vitamin D supplement to see you through the winter. If you have got dark skin, you need more, much more, because the sunshine in this country is just woefully inadequate for all of us. But the darker our skin, the more woefully inadequate it is. So I would generalise that we all need vitamin D through a British winter. And I think with viruses around, we need um, vitamin C as well through the winter. Um, and lastly, again, because of the virus, I do think we need zinc. Beyond that, it does need to be individualized. For example, if you're a vegan, you probably need vitamin B12. Uh, and you must have vitamin D3 because it only comes from sunshine. It doesn't come from any non-animal food. Right? So it's not there in the vegan diet. Um, so again, you know, if you eat lots of oily fish, you may need a bit less vitamin D. Um, if you are completely exhausted and you're 85 years old, then some CoQ10 would probably be useful for you. But if you're 25 and fit and healthy, you don't need CoQ10. Now, obviously, in my practice, I would measure these things. I would do a blood test to find out what your CoQ10 level is. But for people who are elderly or exhausted or have Parkinson's disease, CoQ10 is a fantastic supplement. You know, um, then there's the B vitamins. Now, if our gut's working properly and we're eating a varied diet with some whole grains and some animal foods, we should get enough vitamin B. But the B vitamins are used up and greatly depleted by stress, emotional stress. And if you can find me someone who hasn't had any emotional stress in the past two years, I'll find you a liar or someone who resides on another planet, right? So at the moment, I think we do need a good B complex in the morning. Um, particularly if we're tired or we've had a stressful day or we've got a really stressful day coming up. 
And then there's the toxins we put into ourselves, like, you know, alcohol, cigarette smoke, you know, paracetamol, which we, you know, we may need the paracetamol if we've got a lot of pain for some reason, but these things deplete all the B vitamins and vitamin C. You know, so the government's recommended daily allowance are a piece of nonsense. They're based on the amount you need to not die of a deficiency disease like scurvy or beriberi. They're not based on the amount you need to be vibrantly healthy. And they're certainly not based on a world in which stress and pollution are draining those vitamins out of your system as fast as you're putting them in. So our needs have increased and our intake has gone down which is why some of us need some supplement some of the time. And in um, chapter six of my book, which is the shortest chapter, it's called Nourish and Flourish, I have a little rant about supplements because an extraordinary number of commercially available supplements are full of junk. And I was really shocked because when I was writing that chapter, I went round to my local chemist with my magnifying glass and studied the ingredients lists on the kind of supplements you would buy in the supermarket or the chemist. And I was frankly horrified, particularly by the ones marketed at children, because actual vitamins and minerals were way down the ingredients list and were in quantities so tiny that they wouldn't do anything. And most of the studies, by the way, that the medical establishment has conducted on vitamins and minerals use such tiny amounts that they wouldn't do anything. So firstly, the amounts were too small, but even worse, they were full of fillers and colorings and emulsifiers and additives and sugar and calcium carbonate, which is chalk and doesn't do any harm, but it just bulks it out. And the reason for this is it's very cheap for the manufacturers. It makes it easy to process the supplements by machine rather than by hand. So decent quality supplements, and I I do recommend in my book how to find them, have got high levels of vitamins and minerals, and those are the first and only things on the ingredients list, right? You don't need anything else. Um, So it's a bit of a minefield, um, but there are a few brands in this country which are really good and really reliable um, and don't put any junk in. But the thing is to go to the health food shop with your magnifying glass and read the ingredients list. And if you're ordering supplements online, and you find something you think is right, and you read the ingredients list, and you're not sure, look at half a dozen other products from that same company. And if they've got things like, you know, sugar, and by the way, anything that ends in O-S-E is a sugar, you know, so, you know, lactose or sucrose or dextrose, anything O's, it's sugar. If they've got that or they've got calcium carbonate or they've got anything with a long Latin name and you don't know what it means, look it up. And if it's an artificial synthetic chemical, don't buy it and don't buy stuff from that company. But there's a slight caveat here, which is you might see something that looks to you like a long Latin name, but it's the Latin name of a plant, right? So, you know, lavendula augustifolia might just mean lavender oil. That shouldn't be in your supplements, though. It should be in your natural essential oils that are organic and harmless and that you use instead of perfume, which is neither organic nor harmless. What do you, what do you think about, um, <clears throat> I can't remember who it was that said, gen, when it comes to supplements, if it's in a really fancy bottle that's really colourful and it, it's, it's often to be avoided, and if it's got a more plain bottle, it's often more 
you can trust it. That, that may be true, but I wouldn't rely on that. I would seriously take your magnifying glass. I mean, whether it's a supplement or whether it's a ready meal, which I hope you're not buying anyway, but anything from the shop that comes in a package, you've got to read the ingredients list, you know, and this is not just food. This is cosmetics. So, you know, if you're buying shampoo or cream to put on your skin, moisturizer, anything like that, read the ingredients list because we have a right to know what's being put into our bodies. And there's plenty of completely health, you know, healthy, safe options out there. And they don't make it easy. And particularly with fragrance or perfume or whatever it's called, they don't have to put an ingredient actually even on the list if it constitutes less than 1%. And there's an American group called the Environmental Working Group who looked at perfume in great detail, and they found that the average commercial perfume has got 14 unlisted ingredients. Okay, you can't see them if they're unlisted, but you look at the ones that are listed, and if they're quite frightening and they're long synthetic chemical names, then don't go near it. And I think, you know, we have to adapt a bit. So if you go to your health food shop and you get some organic essential oils, which are what perfume used to be. It's just that petrochemicals are cheaper and more profitable. You can get wonderful smells like you know, jasmine, lavender, geranium, orange flower, rose. These are simply made from the flower. Because they're natural, they biodegrade quicker. You know, you put it on in the morning, it won't still be there in the evening. You have to add a dab during the day if you want to, but you're not doing yourself any harm. Uh, whereas almost all our commercial products, not just perfume itself, but other things, you know, from your shampoo to whatever you clean your sink with, they've got fragrance added, right? And this is just the petrochemical industry getting its products into everything you use. So open the cupboard under your sink and look at everything you're using for cleaning because you can clean your windows with vinegar and you can wipe your surfaces with a clean, damp cloth and you don't want to be spraying antibacterial rubbish everywhere because it only you know, reduces your resistance and kills the good bugs along with the bad. Um, and, you know, you don't want to be scrubbing your vegetables with soap. You want to be buying organic in the first place and looking at bathroom cabinet as well. You know, what are you putting on your body? You know, your aftershave, your deodorant, all this stuff. Now, if you're eating really well, and exercising and washing regularly, you don't need deodorant. You know, I spent years advising people to get natural deodorants without aluminium, without parabens, and people would say, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't make any difference. Okay, so forget it, you know. There are more toxic things around than the smell of human sweat. And I firmly believe it only smells bad if it's old or if it's the smell of fear, the sweat of fear. Um, but if it's just exercise and you go and have a shower every day, um, you know, if you're a, you know, a testosterone-charged young man of 25 and you're exercising like crazy and you sweat a lot, then you have to wash more often. But they've got the kids at secondary school spraying this atrocious stuff. I won't name it, you know. I don't want to be sued. Um, but it's a, it's a four-letter word, um, the worst brand of spray deodorant. And these kids are poisoning themselves in each other in the changing rooms and the teachers of PE are insisting that they do it. And make no mistake, these chemicals that I'm talking about are carcinogenic. They damage DNA, and so they interfere with reproduction and contribute to infertility and to children being born with serious problems and so on. 
Um, and they also are contributing to cancer because anything that damages DNA is going to cause both birth defects and cancer. Um, and they also, because they were originally, you know, nerve gases, interfere with the nervous system. And what are we seeing? We're seeing a pandemic of neurodegenerative conditions like motor neurone disease, multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's, autism. All of these things mean that some chemical that's originally a petrochemical, dissolves in fat, is getting into your brain and in some cases triggering autoimmune reactions as well. Um, so we need to clean up our act by cleaning up our kitchen cupboards and our bathroom cupboards. Um, and yeah, I describe how to do that in chapter seven of the book. And you talked about um, just then finding ways to use better or more less harmful cleaning products. And, and also in the book, you talked about um, mouthwash and using some a combination of herbs and stuff. So I was wondering if in many high streets there are are there, are there are there herbalists who could kind of help you with some of this stuff in around um not in every high street but certainly practitioners of herbal medicine are brilliant at this you can find one near you through looking up the national institute of medical herbalists the nimh national institute of medical herbalists any herbalist will be able to make you up um a herbal mouthwash um i use one from america called perio bright Perio as in periodontal and the bright without the GH. So B-R-I-T-E, perio bright. Got lots and lots of different herbs in it. If you want to make that or any other herbal mixture even more powerful, add a couple of drops of tea tree oil. Now tea tree is a natural essential oil, but it smells like hospitals. You know, it's as powerfully antiseptic as anything else. And a couple of drops of Lugol's iodine. Now, iodine is still the most powerful antiseptic, antiviral, antibacterial, antifungal on the planet, which is why they still use it in operating theatres. Before they make a cut, they swab the person's skin with liquid iodine. Um, but the thing is, it's naturally occurring, it's cheap, there's no profit in it. So they're pushing all sorts of other antivirals, but the best one there is is iodine. So a couple of drops of iodine in your mouthwash is going to improve your oral hygiene tremendously. Um, and so is avoiding sugar. Because if you eat sugar, unfriendly bugs will breed in your mouth and in your gums. And of course, the mouth is the beginning of the digestive tract. So when we talk about gut health and microbiome, you're absolutely right. We have to include the mouth. You can even get mouth probiotics these days, which you can rinse with. And CoQ10, which I mentioned earlier, um, as an oral, as a supplement to take, is also very good for the gums. And, of course, so is vitamin C. You know, the first sign of scurvy was gums bleeding. And your book is, well, there's so many great case studies in there. And I know, you, I mean, we again, we were talking before the, the recording started that you had so many other case studies that you'd like to have put in there, but it just wasn't enough space. So there's, there's one come yes. to mind that, that would give well, some... partly there wasn't enough space, Tony, but there's another reason. Um, some of the other case histories, um, the publishers considered too scary. I think we need to face being scared a bit mm. in the secure knowledge that there are solutions to these problems. Mm. So I'll tell you one of them, and I think it's going to be in my next book, a young couple that went um, on a honeymoon to the area between France and Spain, 
in, I think it was late March or early April, and they went for a walk through these very beautiful orchards. I think peach orchards where the peach blossom, you know, the, the trees were flowering and they didn't realize till the end of their walk that people were spraying in the orchard. Uh, maybe they weren't flowering because I think they spray before they flower. But anyway, they inadvertently walked through an orchard where people in full protective gear and masks, which of course these tourists, my patients, didn't have, were spraying the trees with some kind of insecticide. Um, and at the end of the walk, the woman collapsed and <clears throat> had to be carried back to the cottage and was vomiting and unable to move for several days, came home. Long story short, um, was ill for over a year before she came to see me, had seen a neurologist, a psychiatrist, an endocrinologist, an everythingologist, and they'd all said, well, it's an atypical chronic fatigue. Actually, it's a typical chronic fatigue because pesticide poisoning often contributes to chronic fatigue, although it can be post-viral, it can be stress, can be many other things. So I did lots of tests that I was then able to access, and I found two different pesticides at incredibly high level in this woman's fat, right? Not in the blood, because the body's very sensible and it gets these things out of the bloodstream within hours. In her fatty tissue, I found very high levels. Now, what these chemicals do, again, remember, they're derived originally from nerve gases, is they act as an anti-cholinesterase. So they destroy cholinesterase, and cholinesterase is the enzyme that breaks down your neurotransmitter, acetylcholine, once it's done its job and crossed the synapse as part of transmitting a nerve impulse through the nervous system. So sorry this, if this is a bit complicated, but basically if the enzyme that breaks it down is destroyed, it doesn't get broken down, it accumulates, and what you get in the end is paralysis. Too much signal, effectively no signal. So this woman spent the first consultation lying on the couch in the consulting room. She couldn't sit in the chair. We had to turn all the lights off. We had to go over to the couch, myself and her husband, and she couldn't tell me the story. She could barely speak. He told me 90% of her story. And this is someone who before this holiday had been jogging, and she'd been jogging five miles every day. She was fit, healthy, and now her body wasn't working and her brain wasn't working. Now, it took me about a year and a half to get her substantially better. And what the program was, was detoxification focused on these pesticides. I gave her a lot of um, a supplement called phosphatidylcholine. I made her introduce loads of healthy fats into her diet, nuts, seeds, avocados, all the good oils, which is like hemp seed oil, safflower oil, sunflower oil, but not the nasty refined stuff you get in plastic bottles in the supermarket that looks like wee-wee, right? We're talking makes like Biona or Clear Spring, dark glass bottles, organic, kept in the fridge, and cold-pressed, not extracted with heat and chemicals, cold-pressed oils that you never cook with. You just put them on salad. So she had loads of that. She had to have loads of vitamins, B, C, D, all the minerals, and of course, omega-3 and omega-6, but I measured her level because, as you said earlier, it has to be personalized. And lots of rest and lots of organic vegetable juicing with a bit of the good oils in as well. Some colonic hydrotherapy. And once she was able to, which took over a year, some saunas, 
to actually sweat out these toxins. And the fat-soluble toxins do come out onto the skin, but only for the first few minutes and only if you keep wiping the sweat off with a clean towel. Otherwise, the skin will just reabsorb it again because that's what it naturally does. It thinks it's reabsorbing the minerals that it doesn't want to lose. Mm. It doesn't know we're trying to get rid of fat-soluble toxins. So, you know, an Epsom salts bars and sprouting seedlings on the windowsill and all those other um, detox methods, which I describe at the end of Chapter 7 of the book, which is Staying Alive in Toxic Times, A Seasonal Guide to Lifelong Health. Now, she got better. And I'm not telling you she got 100% better because she didn't. It took about 18 months and she would say she got 80% better. So she was able to work, she was able to walk, she was able to function, Hmm. but she was never going to be happy with, you know, fluorescent lights and, you know, an evening of drinking wine. Her liver couldn't take that anymore. Hmm. What's very interesting about this is her husband, who walked through the same orchard being sprayed, was perfectly all right. And I did genetic tests at their request on both of them. There is an enzyme called PON1, P-O-N-1, paraoxinase one, I think, which does break down organophosphate pesticides. He had the full version of that. He had the perfectly functioning version of the gene to make that enzyme from both his parents. She didn't. She had the defective version from both her parents. So she was homozygous for the genetic glitch and he was fine. Hmm. So your genetics determines how you will react to these chemicals, which is why some people, for example, cabin crew on airlines get very ill with aerotoxic syndrome. Many pilots do as well. And some are absolutely fine. The genetic difference determines how much our post-industrial toxic world will damage you. But I think it's important to be clear what's doing the damage is not the genes. It's the toxic chemicals in our environment. So this lady would have been perfectly well before the Industrial Revolution. And and that story makes me think about, so you talked about they're walking through that field and the the pesticides are being sprayed. So for people in England who maybe live near a farm or yes. or their yeah. park, there's, you know, people are spraying stuff on there. Yeah. How, okay, how so, can they be vigilant about stuff like that? Well, first of all, contact a wonderful organisation called PAN, Pesticide Action Network. The Pesticide Action Network is a fantastic charity and they'll tell you which local authorities have already agreed to stop spraying herbicides, weed killers on the grass verges and the parks and which are still doing it, they will give you some hints on how to campaign about it. Um, But yes, local authorities are using these chemicals, and you have to be particularly wary in spring and early summer. Um, And the only thing to do here is to become an activist, contact your local authority and make sure they're not doing this, because you don't want to take your kids to the park for a picnic and be sitting on the grass where yesterday they sprayed insecticides. And, And even closer to home, pets... Cats and dogs, uh, flea collars are impregnated with these insecticides. And I've had these totally surreal conversations with the vets where um, you'll say, well, when will it be safe for my toddler to stroke the cat or the dog? And they'll say, oh, within 48 hours. And then you say, and how long will this collar or these drops of insecticides that you put between the animal's shoulder blades, how long will they keep being effective and killing the fleas? And they say, oh, three to six months. Now, 
hang on a minute, stop and think about that. It's effective for three to six months, but it's safe for your toddler to pet the animal after two days. No, these are very enduring chemicals. They're persistent. They last. They're still there. And guess what? There are completely safe, natural, alternative ways to keep fleas off your pet. Okay? There's a wonderful herb called neem. That's M for no one, double E, M for mother, from the neem tree in India. They have been using it to kill bad bugs for thousands of years. And if you get the powdered bark or leaf of the neem tree, which you can get from a herbal supplier, and you rub that all over your pet every few months, you'll have a green dog or cat for a couple of days, but that doesn't matter. They lick it off, and in licking it off, it acts as a natural worming powder as well, and they will never catch fleas. And it works to get rid of the fleas as well if they've got them. So, you know, you can do that. You can use neem powder, and you don't ever need these nasty insecticides from the vet. I think, I've got a theory that most vets have this strong genetic makeup where they are well able to detoxify these chemicals. Otherwise, they'd never get through veterinary school. You know, and they handle chemotherapy agents a lot as well because dogs and cats are getting cancer as much as we are now and they're getting chemotherapy. And you know, the vets that can handle those things have got strong detox liver enzyme systems um, but some of us haven't, and some of our pets haven't either. We've we've talked uh, quite a bit about your your book, which came out a couple of years ago. Was it? I think it was two thousand nineteen, and you've mentioned a couple of times. About no, it came out in January twenty twenty. Oh right, precisely two months before lockdown, as a hardback, and then the paperback came out in March twenty twenty one. And they let me add a couple of pages of nutrition for strengthening the immune system to protect against viral infections. So that's on page 255 to 6 in the paperback. And you've mentioned a couple of times about your, your new book. So when do you think that will come out and what will... Uh, it's embryonic. It's embryonic, Tony. Right. Um, it's really very new. Um, I only have just wound up my clinical practice and retired in November in order to focus full-time on writing. Right. And then I broke my ankle, so everything's been a bit derailed. Um, but I took comfrey tea and put comfrey balm on it and already was taking loads of D3 and K2, so the bone healed in double-quick time. But, you know, I'm, I'm still hobbling with ligament and, and tendon sprains from the same injury because the local council hadn't mended a massive hole in my pavement. Therefore... The book has barely begun. I haven't even got a proposal yet. I've got an outline. I've got hundreds of ideas. Um, I'm meeting with my agent in a month's time. So it'll be a good couple of years before it's out um, because these things take time. But I do have ideas for books three, four, and five as well. And now I'm going to be focusing on that full time. So watch this space. And that's definitely something to look forward to. I mean, if it's anywhere near as good as the current book, then yes, definitely something to look forward to. <laughs> Thank you. Thank so, you. So talking of books, um, a question I always ask everyone, is there, is, is the book come to mind that's really moved you in any way? Oh gosh, you know, I read absolutely constantly and there are so many wonderful books. Am I allowed to name two? Of course, yeah. Okay, so from 1976, there's Marge Pierce's dystopian and utopian novel called Woman on the Edge of Time. And from probably about the same era, I've just read Ursula K. Le Guin's book, The Dispossessed. Everything Ursula K. Le Guin writes is absolute genius. 
but I think my favorite is The Dispossessed. And it's, it's about an attempt at a utopian society, but because she's a very sophisticated writer, not naive, she died recently, sadly. Um, the utopia is not perfect, and the dystopia is not totally evil either. So she really captures the complexity of life and people's moving and sincere efforts to make a better world. Well, Jenny, if people want to find out more about you and your social media, your website and so on, where, where would they look? Well, my website is simply called drjennygoodman.com. So that's dr, drjennygoodman.com. And on the website, you can find all the links. I'm on all these channels now. Instagram is far and away the most active one. Uh, but I'm posting twice a week now on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Uh, I do have somebody helping me with it because I'm a complete technophobe. Uh, but there's a lot of content on there, particularly Instagram. I mean, I can't do it myself because you have to post a photo and I don't even have a smartphone. That's how low tech I am. Um, but, yeah, I believe that on the website, drjennygoodman.com, it's got the links to all those four social media channels and it's also got the links to the book and all sorts of other things. Well, and in the show notes to this episode, I'll put all those links and also I'll include the links of some upcoming talks that you're going to be speaking at and, and so on as well. Yes, I've got, I've got, I mean, obviously loads of webinars and podcasts planned, but I have got three live gigs coming up. Yeah, at the Nutrition Collective on the 24th of Feb and um, the Oxford Literary Festival on the 31st of March, if anyone's near Oxford. And at the end of May, I think the weekend of 28th, 29th, there's a huge gathering called the Health Optimization Summit. And I'm speaking there as well. Okay. Yeah. So I'll include all those links so people can find out where, if they want to go and see you speak as well. So thank you. Just before we finish, a, a question I always um, finish on with every guest is Is there a quotation that you really like? Yes. And I'll, I'll tell you where I get, got this quote from. I'm afraid I don't know who first said it, but um, a new friend came round to visit me after I broke my ankle and she bought me a t shirt. And she, although she's a new friend, she must know me quite well because the slogan on the T-shirt is, I'd rather have questions that can't be answered than answers that can't be questioned. Um, and it's a thin short sleeve T-shirt. I can't wait for the weather to be warm enough to go out and about wearing it. I'd rather have questions that can't be answered than answers that can't be questioned. I've got a feeling that was one of the, the ancient Greeks, I'm sure I've heard, I've definitely heard it before. And I, yeah, I wouldn't right. be positive, but I think it's... We'll all have to go and look it up and find out who said it. Yeah. Well, Jenny, it's been an absolute pleasure. I, you know, thank you for your time and for sharing your wisdom. And it's been, I'm sure uh, my audience will be really, um, really appreciative of all the, the wisdom that you shared with them. So thank you. You're very welcome. So we've got an added bonus here. Jenny is, um, so I asked Jenny some questions about habits. And so Jenny's got some habits she's going to give to the audience. <laughs> okay. So uh, one is that I, I start every day with a brisk 45 or 60 minute walk, so three quarters of an hour an hour. Obviously, that's a bit tricky when you've broken your ankle, but it's getting better. And I am getting back to that. And I find not only it makes me feel better physically to have been exercising outdoors, uh, I'm lucky I have a green space nearby where I can do that. It also makes me function much better mentally. You know, I sit at my desk and I do better work if I've had a jolly good brisk walk. 
and if I'd had breakfast as well. Uh, my second habit is what these days would be called a digital detox. So at least one day a week, well, it is one day a week, uh, I turn the computer off. Right? I don't have a smartphone, right? And I don't have a tablet or um, iPad or any of those things. Um, so I turn the computer off and leave it off for at least 24 hours at the weekend. Um, so if people want me, they have to phone the old landline. Um, and so that's a built-in digital detox. Uh, and again, like the walking, I think it makes your brain work better and you, you come back refreshed, a little weekly holiday. And you can survive, you know, you can survive without being in electronic contact with the whole world all the time. You can even actually see people face to face. Well, that's yeah, that's superb, and there's some, some great habits to to replicate or to aim for, anyway. So yeah, okay. I do something not quite. I don't do the twenty four hours, but my phone is on airplane mode for at least twelve hours every day. Sometimes probably probably more than that, quite often. That's great. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Well, yeah, thank you for those, Jenny, and hopefully that will give some people some ideas and some habits they can uh, try to use them for yeah, themselves. You're very welcome. Okay. Next week is episode 53 with Sarah Tate, who was very successful working in the city of London, working in finance, uh, doing really well. When she she got married uh, a few years ago and was doing a lot of preparation for the wedding. And after the wedding, she kind of felt like there was, she put so much effort into to planning a wedding she was kind of almost let down afterwards and so she decided to put all that energy into her work and was working crazy hours and really putting a lot of effort in till the point where she had a a psychotic episode and she actually had a, a major breakdown and was off work for a very long time and and then since then has become a coach and she helps people who do have mental health episodes. And so we're going to hear a lot more about that story next week with Sarah Tate. If you know anyone who would get some real value from some of the gold that Jenny shared with us in this episode, please do share the episode with them. And I hope you have a great week. Thanks for tuning in to the Habits and Health Podcast, where we believe creating healthy habits should be easy. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. Sign up for email updates and learn about coaching and workshop opportunities at TonyWinyard.com. See you next time on the Habits and Health Podcast.